thank you, Justin, and thank you, really, everybody that uh, I talked to about this and just for, for praying for me and for encouraging me. It's just been uh, just really encouraging and balm for my soul, and uh, so just so thank you. Um, as you can see in the bulletin this morning, we're in the book of Habakkuk, and if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and someone will pass one out to you, and uh, if you'd like to keep that Bible, you can just go ahead and take that home. It's our gift to you. Can you uh, think back on your life or, or maybe even like current circumstances and think of a moment where you've had an overwhelming sense of dread or foreboding regarding some catastrophe or event or something that's on the horizon and coming your way? Well, when I was a uh, junior in high school, I kind of gave in to peer pressure. I had a bunch of friends on the wrestling team and they made it sound like it was really fun. And so I signed up for the wrestling team. And looking at me, I am not a wrestler. <laughs> I, I wish I'd had friends on the basketball team, but they were on the wrestling team. And I'd like to say that I was great, but I was really terrible. Uh, I was what they called a fish, someone really easy to pin. Um, but it was enjoyable. I had fun. Uh, but, and I got like one pin that year. And the reward for that was like your coach would give you a little safety pin, and you put it on your sweats, and you can strut around. Um, but the, the standout moment for me in my wrestling career was when we had to wrestle this team from uh, La Center, Minnesota. I grew up in Mankato, Minnesota. And it, there were uh, guys at, there was a guy at 135, a guy at 140, and the 145 slot was open for wrestling. And I couldn't beat the 135 and the 140 guy. And I weighed 135. So I had to wrestle up. I had to wrestle 145. And in junior high school, 10 pounds of muscle is a huge difference. <laughs> and, and my friends took great pleasure in telling me, oh, you get to wrestle Joe Block. And I was like, are you kidding me? His name's Joe Block? <laughs> and yeah, and, they, and they, they took great joy in telling me that Joe Block, the uh, returning state champion and, oh, silver medalist at the junior national championships. And and so I just had this overwhelming sense of dread. And the day of the meet came, and of course it was a home, home meet, so I, I get to be humiliated in front of the home crowd. <laughs> and, and I'm trying to psych myself up and think, okay, I'm just going to shoot in so fast on this guy, he's not going to see what's coming. And, uh, but uh, So the day of the meet comes, and, and I'm just filled with dread. I'm in math class, all I can think about is, Okay, in a few hours, this guy is just going to just destroy me. And uh, we're, we're, we're down in the gym, getting, you know, getting ourselves psyched up. And this is the mid-80s, so we're listening to Queen, We Will Rock You, <laughs> immediately followed by We Are the Champions. And uh, <clears throat> my coach is going to each guy down the, the line. We're lined up by weights, and he like, gets to a guy, and he's like, you got this, you got this, you can get this guy, he's a fish. And he goes to the next guy, you cut in on him, you get him, you take him down so fast, you got this. And he gets to me. And then he goes to the next guy. <laughs> I'm like, no confidence? Come on. <laughs> and then, and so we go upstairs, and uh, the crowd's all there, and, and I see the LeCenter team coming out, and I know my opponent because he's the dude with pins all the way down his sweats. And my stomach just drops out from underneath me. And I go out there, and I'm all set to wrestle. And it's embarrassing enough that you're in this awkward singlet. <laughs> And I'm tall and lanky, and he's like this gorilla. And, and I see the ref's hand, and he's like, wrestle. And I went to shoot in, and I realized immediately I just was not fast enough or strong enough. And then 12 seconds later, it was over. <laughs> and uh, the newspaper, like in the next day or whatever, it was very kind to point out that it was two seconds shy of a state record. And uh, I'm just thankful that YouTube was not around back then. Um, but uh, looking back on that, the, the thing I remember most about that whole wrestling career was not that actual match. You know, it was like 10 seconds or 12 seconds. It, it was the anticipation and that dread that I had. I mean, that, that was like way bigger and a way bigger deal than everything leading up to that point. This is growing awareness that something bad was about to happen. In, in my case, the imminent demise on the wrestling mat. Well, have we not all been there? I mean, Scripture says that man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. We have all had difficulties in life. 
be it a, a difficult confrontation, difficult conversation, a medical diagnosis with a grim outlook, mounting debt. And so it goes without saying that this life is not without pain and dread. That, that is understood. So the question remains, how are we to cope? As Christians, how do we walk this life in faith, looking towards Christ, and endure hardship? Well, today we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. And some here this moment, morning are like the prophet Habakkuk, crying out to God. Some of us in this room, even this moment, are on the, the cusp, the threshold of great difficulties. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at Habakkuk. And we're going to consider his response to impending trials. And like Habakkuk, how is it that we today can respond in a similar manner despite the severity of any trial heading our way? How can we respond that way? Some of you have heard of this book. Some of you haven't. Most of us may not be familiar with it. But Habakkuk is a minor prophet with a major message. Contained within these three chapters, one of the central tenets of Christianity is articulated. It's something that's laid out in the Old Testament, and it's driven home by the New Testament. And it's that the righteous will live by faith. Today, our focus is going to be on the last four verses of the book, Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. And if you want to turn there, it's almost right at the end of the Old Testament. So just go ahead and open up to where the New Testament starts, and then just flip back about 10 to 12 pages. Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. A little background is going to help to put these uh, verses into perspective. Uh, I know there's a bunch of Star Wars fans in the, in the audience, but if you're not familiar with Star Wars, every Star Wars film kind of starts out with the same thing, right? That, that opening crawl, the yellow text that kind of goes into oblivion. When I first saw Star Wars when I was five years old, I was like, I hope the whole movie's not like this. It's just so much reading. I can't keep up. <laughs> but thankfully it wasn't. Um, but if Habakkuk had that opening crawl, like a Star Wars movie, it would read something like this. It is a period of moral decay in Judah. A weakened vassal state of the Assyrian Empire is all that remains of a once unified Israel, a mere fraction of its former glory. Destruction, violence, strife, and contention rule while the law is paralyzed. The wicked have surrounded the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. A lone voice calls out to the Lord, and the response is anything but expected. So that's the setting where Habakkuk starts off. Israel and Judah have split. The Assyrian Empire, which swallowed up Israel, is on the decline while the Babylonian Empire is beginning its ascension. And Habakkuk is in Judah, and he's distraught over the wickedness around him. Specifically, the wicked things that God's chosen people are doing. People that bear God's name. And so he calls out to the Lord, imploring the Lord to deal with the wickedness around him. And the book opens with this cry to the Lord. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. In reading these verses, I'm, I'm struck by how many times in my life I've seen the world and, and cried out in a similar way. 
We see a world around us, and it's completely filled with injustice. We're troubled by its wickedness, and it seems that God is doing nothing. Surely, as the sovereign of the universe, we think, he could just wipe out all the evil around us. But God's ways are not our ways. And we see this in God's response to Habakkuk when he tells him that he's going to raise up the Babylonians to judge the people of Judah. God goes on to describe just how ruthless and violent and swift this invasion is going to be. How complete and crushing their blow is going to be upon the, of Judah. And, and that God ordained that they are going to be the rod of God's judgment upon the stiff necks of a disobedient people. And understandably, Habakkuk is confused. I mean, how can God use an utterly wicked people, a wicked empire, that stands, for, stands against everything that God stands for, to judge those more righteous than themselves? Or as Habakkuk says, how can the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than himself? And so armed with this knowledge that God is about to lay waste to everything around him in judgment, at the hands of an incredibly cruel and wicked nation, Habakkuk responds with the verses that we are considering today. And in his response, we see a joy-filled, heaven-focused, God-centered response that culminates, culminates in worship. How, that's crazy. That's mind-blowing. The world sees that in our lives in, in lives of people like Habakkuk, and they have no category for that. They cannot explain that because that does not make sense to worship in moments of anguish. But we know that it's only by God's grace, and it's only out of difficulty of God's, that God's grace can make our hearts be moved to worship. And so if I had a roadmap for the views and kind of stopping points in our time in Habakkuk this morning, it would be how Habakkuk responded. Why was he able to respond the way he did? And what is our response to adversity, whether, whether pending or current? So first, how did Habakkuk respond? The short answer is that he responds with forward thinking. This news of the Babylonian invasion was not what Habakkuk would have asked for or what he was expecting. God tells him as much when he says, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is like when you go to the doctor or, or your boss calls you into the office and they say, I need to talk to you, but you'll want to sit down for this. You know, right then and there, you know that what they're going to say is very heavy, if not terrible or bad. And so in the same way, God, this is God kind of preparing Habakkuk for what he's about to hear. Because what God is going to say is unimaginable for even Habakkuk to fathom. And we see this comes as a shock to Habakkuk. And here's why. Like many civilizations in that era, the Babylonians were known for their cruelty. They destroyed entire civilizations. They would lead people away into slavery. And the way they did that, would they put hooks through their cheeks and lead them down the roads. But God reveals to him that the violence that the Babylonians inflict upon other countries, other nations, their cruelty, is going to come back around to them. That cup of judgment will come to them and they will be made to drink it fully. And it's going to bring utter shame upon their glory. And it's understandable that upon getting this news that Habakkuk is utterly terrified and filled with dread. And we read that his, his body is convulsed with fear. His lips are shaking. A sense of rotting is felt within him. His legs tremble beneath him. This is somebody in the grips of fear. And when I read Habakkuk's account... I don't think that I have ever been that afraid. I mean, I'm certainly familiar with some of these feelings. That plunging feeling in your stomach. Muscles that, that, that don't respond the way that you, you're trying to tell them to respond. But for Habakkuk here, this is a, a whole body experience. This is totally paralyzing, an all-consuming sense of dread. And what do we do in those moments? Tunnel vision. It's, it's a loss of awareness of things in the periphery, kind of a, a, a fight-or-flight response. It's only a, an awareness of only that which is immediately in front of you. And so when you are afraid, it's hard to do anything but think about that thing looming in right in front of you, which is causing you fear. And add to that to the fact that since this is coming from the author of creation, this is no mere threat. 
This is a promise. This is going to happen. There is going to be no avoiding this. This prophet that started out so angry with God at the wickedness around him is given way more of an answer than he anticipated. It rocks him to his core. And as we read about his crumbling physical reaction to the bad news, I love this. We get this beautiful line towards the end of the, the, the verses. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. At this point, what follows is kind of the turning point in Habakkuk's heart. It goes from like anger and confusion and angst to one of acceptance and a sober outlook on the judgment to come. But at this same time, exuding confidence in the God of his salvation and joy in worship. This is a huge contrast to the Habakkuk of chapter 1, who complained and cried out indignantly, almost demanding that God answer him. And now he's, he's basically saying, God, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're going to do. It terrifies me, yet I will wait quietly. I understand And it's like Jesus in the garden before he was crucified, praying in anguish, anguish that this cup would pass. This is Habakkuk's garden of Gethsemane. This is his not my will be done, but yours moment. And while Habakkuk may not understand the nuances of God's plan, we see the expression of his faith in the Lord. Ultimately, we see why he can have this quiet confidence. It's because of his faith. His earnest belief that what God says will happen, will happen. And you can see this by the way he responded. He's shaking uncontrollably, trembling at what the Lord has said, because he knows and has faith that what God has said will come to pass. And as a man of faith, who knows God and his his will, that God is the supreme authority and sovereign over all creation, that God's dominion and power are total and complete. And ultimately, that faith is what allowed him the ability to have that quiet resignation, to be silent and wait patiently. Because he didn't just have faith that God was going to judge Judah with Babylon. He He also had faith that God would judge the Babylonians. And he had faith that God would ultimately save himself, Habakkuk. And he's patiently waiting, taking joy despite the impending judgment, despite what is going to happen. Here we read in verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He's able to worship. The culmination of these verses is a response of worship, even though it wasn't what he was looking for, nor what he would have wanted, the judgment that's coming. And when this judgment hits, the conditions in Judah will be severe. You know, it's, it's easy for us to just kind of quickly read these things in the Bible and, and just gloss over them. But when Habakkuk speaks of failed fig tree blossoms, empty vines, barren olive field, trees, fields without food and missing livestock, what he is saying is that when the Babylonians come, Judah can expect desolate conditions of famine and want. Without these things, there's going to be no wine, there will be no bread, There will be no oil. There will be no ability to shear sheep and make clothing. There will be no ability to slaughter animals and make sacrifices to God. Their entire economy, from top to bottom, is going to be laid barren. In essence, the violent aggressors that invade Judah will destroy the land. Our modern-day example of this would be like losing all of our electrocommunications, all of our utilities, all of our economic infrastructure at the same time to an invading army. As one author writes, the army of Nebuchadnezzar would consume all that supports life, leaving behind a hungry nation, a broken economy, and an unproductive barren landscape. Fruitfulness of the earth, the sign of God's blessing, and the joy of Israel would disappear. For an agrarian society, this is the worst news. And so Habakkuk knows the problem and the hardship and the difficulty is there. He's very well aware of it. But we can see this isn't where he's setting his gaze. While these things are going to happen, they are peripheral matters to Habakkuk at this point. He is looking to the one who is sovereign over all things, the one who saves him in an ultimate sense. And this understanding is why Habakkuk, in the midst of an imminent judgment around him, rejoices in the Lord and can take joy in his salvation. 
For Habakkuk, as a prophet, knows and understands that famine is ahead, but there is more to life than food. That as Christ said in the desert after fasting for 40 days, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so while the harvest may fail, while there may be no livestock, those things only bring life temporarily. But God's word brings life eternal. And Habakkuk is forward-looking, resting in God's promised salvation, his promise of life eternal. If you've ever ridden your bike into a solid object, like a tree or a car or a utility pole, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, they say when you're riding a bike, you're not supposed to look at something on the side of the road. Because what happens? You're, it's like you're inextricably drawn to it. You can't, you can't like make your arms move. You just, your body just goes to what it is you're looking at. And I think for us, when we are on that road of life, we tend to look at those distractions, those hardships that are coming our way, and we look at them and we lose focus of God. We let them pull us in and it makes us hard to look at the greater picture that is not our will, but God's be done. But each one of these yets in this passage is a sober, joy-inducing, not my will, but yours be done moment. It's saying, God, even though there's a huge rock on the side of the road and it's going to roll on top of me, I will look straight ahead and move towards you in faith and ride this path of your will. And I love reading about moments in verses like this where it says, yet. Because the enemy would love nothing more than to crush us under the weight of our fears and our apprehensions. He wants us to embrace the mindset that that our understanding is paramount. And if something doesn't make sense to us, clearly God is wrong. A couple months ago, my wife and I had a conversation about macular degeneration because it, it runs in my family. And on a whim, I printed off this test called an Amsler test. And it's just a a series of grids. And you're supposed to cover one eye and look in the middle. And if you have a problem, the lines will go all squiggly in certain spots. Well, I was mortified when I checked my left eye. And I saw a bunch of squiggly lines down here on the left. So uh, the next day, I called a retinal specialist and got an appointment. And I went in. And um, they were doing, like, all the pictures. And they dilate your eyes. And when, while you're waiting for your eyes to dilate, they send you to this waiting room. It's like dark and dim. And why do they have magazines in there? Because your eyes are completely shot. <laughs> it's just... <sighs> Anyhow, I'm trying to text my wife. I can't see anything. But I'm sitting there waiting. And then, and then I go in and the tech takes all these pictures of my eyes. And I can you know, you know, put my head in the thing. And I can see the pictures on the computer screen. And he's very helpful to point out, yeah, that's the problem area right there. And then he leaves... And I'm left to sit by myself in this dark room with these pictures of the problem area. (laughs) And I wait, and I wait. And those moments are the worst. Because what happens when, when we've got something horrible and we don't have that whole picture? Our mind starts to work things over. And I'm like, how bad is this gonna be? Is it gonna spread? Am I gonna go blind? Oh my gosh, how hard is it to learn Braille? I should have memorized more scripture. And I found myself on this downward spiral of fear. I started getting freaked out, and I was trying to make sense of everything from my perspective. And I was being crushed under the weight of my fears. And it was, really felt like it was spinning out of control. And so I started thinking about heaven, and I started praying. And I thought about the glory that awaits. And it, and it made these problems, it didn't make them go away, but it, it put them in the right perspective. And so I was still nervous, but I wasn't on that downward spiral. And after what felt like an eternity, the doctor comes in and gives me the good news that it's not macular degeneration. But the bad news is, since I had a concussion from playing hockey when I was a kid, the blood vessels in my eye were weakened and they chose now to burst. So they had to give me a treatment and thankfully they caught the problem and were on the road to recovery. But it was sobering to see how easy it was to focus on my fears and apprehensions, to, to only look at my understanding Instead of saying first, not my will, but yours be done. Habakkuk's psalm ends with verse 19, wherein he compares himself to a deer by saying, he makes my feet like a deer's. Have you ever seen a deer? 
they can run seriously fast. And not just in the open, but in the woods. And so if, if you or I were to try to run down a deer, we would fail miserably. Well, everybody except like Sean and Mike Dewey. Because I've got these guys on my Fitbit and they, get, they put some serious steps in every week. So. But a deer is a swift and fleet-footed animal. And they can run quickly and deftly in and out of obstacles. And it's really amazing to see them bob and weave. And so what a different picture of Habakkuk that we have who a few verses earlier has rotten bones and trembling legs. But because of the strength he can draw from God, he's like a lame man now able to run. And not just run, but run really well. And he can run in the high places. The high places were where the victors would walk and survey their conquests. It was a place of victory and dominance. And so reading this verse is almost like reading Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, where he writes, He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What a great demonstration of God's power made perfect in weakness, so that Habakkuk can basically boast all the more gladly in his weakness, so that the power of God can rest upon him. In this understanding, he can be content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For where he is weak, there God is strong. And if this was true for Habakkuk, and if this was true for Paul, brothers and sisters, this is true for us today. Where we are weak, where we are insecure or scared, God is strong. And so that's how Habakkuk responded. But let's consider why he was even able to do this. Because like myself sitting in that doctor's office, I couldn't do it on my own. Habakkuk was filled with dread and joy at the same time. I mean, how is that possible? Well, I think the answer is found in a faith that produces joy in the midst of dread. And seeing that joy and dread are not mutually exclusive. These two things can happen at the same time. And when I first approached this, it was kind of of the thinking that Habakkuk's mindset had changed. That he went from a place of fear and weakness to one of utter confidence. But the more I read it, the more I realized he's feeling this joy and this dread and this weakness. At the same time, he's feeling the confidence and joy. And I think it would be good for us to consider that for our own lives. Because like Habakkuk, every human being that has lived before him and has lived after him we can be certain that there will be things that we dread in life and there are going to be moments of anguish. Habakkuk was feeling great affliction and great dread when he got the news of the invasion. And he's confounded by the news. He understands that the land is about to be severely tried. He can't make sense of it. He can't wrap his mind around it the way that God is working. But by faith, he's able to look past these immediate circumstances He can look past what he doesn't understand, past the impending invasion, and look forward to what he does understand. A future day, a future promise that God will judge the Babylonians, and that there is a future salvation that awaits him. And we know Habakkuk had faith because of how he reacts when he gets his answer from God. He believes God. It doesn't make sense, but he believes him. And he goes from demanding justice and pointing out the wickedness in the first two chapters to being quiet and patient before the Lord in the last chapter. And while he didn't understand the way God operates, he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Yet, another way to look at this is, even so, I will quietly wait. Despite all of this, I will quietly wait for your future promise. Or like we're going to sing later, even so, it is well with my soul. This is faith in action. And I said earlier that Habakkuk contains one of the central tenets of the Christian faith. And it's that the righteous shall live by faith. The author of Hebrews makes this point, as does Paul in Romans and Galatians. This righteousness is rightness before God. It's being able to stand before him in all his holy and all his splendor and to have everything be okay between you and him. But his rightness This rightness I speak of is not our own. It has no origin or start in us. We come by it secondhand. We come by it only through the gospel, 
paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the total opposite of self-righteousness, which is an unfounded certainty of one's moral superiority. The righteousness that Habakkuk had and that we have is not compared to other people. It's not even compared to us, like how we have been, how we will be, how we are. It's a free gift from God for all who believe. And it's also binary. It's either present or not present. It will not happen in degrees. You can't be kind of righteous. We have a tendency to think in terms of performance, but righteousness is tied to your saving faith in God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, I'm much better about it now, but when I was in high school, I despised going to the dentist, but more than going to the dentist, uh, I hated flossing. Or, yeah, I couldn't stand it. But the dentist would always rebuke me for not flossing. And I didn't like getting rebuked. So for two weeks before the dentist appointment, I would toughen up my gums by flossing. And the dentist couldn't tell. He'd be like, oh, nice job flossing. And, uh, and I would go on my merry way. <coughs> and, and I just, I think sometimes I was like that with my faith. I used to think that that verse, that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, was meant for the well-behaved but it's not. I had a completely opposite understanding of righteousness. Righteousness is not performance, but familial. It's to God's decree that there is nothing that stands between you and him and that you are his son or daughter. So if we have this right standing, we live by faith, not should, not might or probably, we will live by faith. And so that tells us that a result, a fruit, of this right standing before God is faith. Faith is an expression of the rightness that we have before God. This faith is what gave Habakkuk the ability to respond the way he did. We want to understand why God does things the way he does, but we are not always afforded that luxury. But we can know. We can look past the understanding, and we can know with certainty that when God speaks, his word is true. And knowing his character and his goodness, we can trust in his word. It is saying, God, this really hurts right now. And I'm scared and I don't understand, but I trust you. I trust what you say. I trust that you're good. And I trust that you love me and you want what is ultimately good for me. That is faith. And that is what Habakkuk turned to when he could not understand what God was about to do. And just as it did in Habakkuk's life, this faith produces joy. Habakkuk is able to take joy in the midst of extreme anguish because of his faith. We see this when he responds in verse 18. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is a big deal for us. This is huge because here we see that Habakkuk takes joy in God. He rejoices not so much in the fact that he is saved, but he rejoices in the God behind that salvation. God is all the more satisfying, more so than the things that he provides. That's loving the giver more than the gift. And as Christians, our joy is not based on circumstances of life around us. It's rooted in the knowledge of who we are, the God who knows us, and where we stand before him. It's not circumstantial. It doesn't depend on our performance or on the state of the world or the fortunes that come our way. It's positional. Habakkuk stood before God as one saved, saved in an ultimate, eternal sense, not a circumstantial, get-out-of-this-situation sense. As sure as the sun sets and rises, we can know that in some way, shape, or form, a day of trouble will be upon us. And this fact is indisputable. We live in a fallen world. Someone close to us is going to hurt us. We are going to hurt somebody. We're going to suffer. Someone we love will suffer. And we can also be assured that like a Babylonian invasion, these things are not going to make sense. They may not even make sense in our lifetimes. But it's okay in these moments to cry out to God. It's okay to ask him questions. He's the safest, best one to go to in these times. Habakkuk is never rebuked for crying out to God and asking him questions. And so when there's a gathering storm in your life, 
It's okay to hurt. It's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to be unhappy. It's okay for things to not make sense. But that doesn't ever mean you can't be joyful. Because our capacity for joy can never be diminished. It can never be removed. Because while those things in life can make us unhappy, they can't touch our joy. Though we do not now see a way out of the problem, in faith we believe in God and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Like, think of a boulder in a stream that's buried under the water. You know, in times of hardship, in times of drought, the water level is going to go lower and that boulder is going to become more exposed. And so like a boulder in a stream that becomes more apparent as the water level drops in times of drought, our joy, which has always been there, should be all the more apparent in times of want and hardship. Brothers and sisters, no matter what lies ahead, our joy will always remain. Lean hard on that joy because your joy is steadfast. It's a rock you can anchor to. You see, when I was waiting in that doctor's office, it was the thought of that joy, the hope that I had in Christ that allowed me to be anchored, not tossed about. It was not my own willpower. That failed me a long time ago. I can't do those things on my own. It was only because I'm saved. And so if you're saved, and what I mean by this is that you understand that your sin, the wrong things that you've done, have angered God and they've separated you from Him. And you know that you deserve to go to hell for those sins. And there's nothing you can do to earn God's forgiveness. It's not like you can do more good deeds to outweigh the bad. And you understand that Jesus came to live the life of obedience that we never could. And that He took the penalty for our sins. And He died on behalf of our sins. You can turn to Jesus in faith saying yes and amen to these things. You can know that you are saved. And you, like Habakkuk, can know the end game. That whatever may come between now and when the Lord calls you home, well, 10,000, 100,000 years from now, be a speck in the past. But if you can't say that, if you can't say that you know Jesus, any happiness, any joy, any comfort that you know now is going to be fleeting. Even if you could be happy, the happiest person in the world for 120 years, in the light of eternity, separated from God, it comes to nothing. What does it profit you if you gain everything but lose everything and lose your soul? There is joy everlasting, eternal unfathomable and despite its awful cost jesus gave it freely and i implore you ask god to reveal himself to you call out to god that he might move your heart to trust him and the joy that habakkuk has is in christ it came from his faith in god and he responds the way he does because of his faith in god that god will continue to show his faithfulness and his graciousness to his children and the Babylonians have not yet invaded when Habakkuk is writing this. But in faith, Habakkuk is already looking forward to that future day with quiet assurance that God will judge them. He looks forward to rejoicing in the Lord as a victor in the high places. Faith makes joy possible. And if you don't love Jesus, any joy you have is counterfeit. A joy that really is not joy. True joy only comes from God. And I understand that not everybody is going to have the same outworking of faith in their life, the same demonstration. But if you are saved, the outworking in your life of this right standing before God is that by and by, your life should be marked by the outward expression of your faith, which affects everything you do, how you face trials, how you go about your day, what you think of, what you do, what you desire. Think about this. Like, if you were a diehard Patriots fan, and you had a time machine, and you could go back through the last football season, you wouldn't bat an eye at a penalty, a loss, or an injury. It wouldn't have bothered you in the slightest that the Atlanta Falcons had what seemed to be an insurmountable lead in the Super Bowl. These things would not have flustered you because you know with certainty the eventual outcome. Now, on the contrary, you could probably go back and watch, and you would enjoy the drama all the more. 
enduring losses, setbacks, with a smile and a nod to the future. And while we may not have time machines, as Christians, we have something better. We have God's Word. And it tells us what we can expect in the end. And we know that we will overcome the world because God says so in His Word. 1 John chapter 5 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the faith, the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is basically a time machine to the future. This tells us what we can expect. What is our sure and certain outcome for anybody who believes? And so in the midst of losses and penalties in life, we can look with confidence to the end. That's faith, and that's why Habakkuk was able to respond the way he did. And so moving along in our points, we've seen the how and the why he responded the way he did, which kind of puts the the pointer on us. What is our response to adversity? I mean, we, we don't have Babylonian invasions going on right now, but we certainly do have hard times. The book of Ephesians tells us that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is just awesome. This would include faith and joy. And since we have faith and joy, what should our response be when God sows the seeds of adversity in the fields of our lives? Worship. The right standing that Habakkuk had and the faith that flowed out of that is what allowed and empowered Habakkuk to take joy in the midst of trials, to have an eternal perspective that understands the end. The end of this passage and the culmination of Habakkuk's experience is the same end that awaits us in eternity. Worship. Standing before the throne of God with complete, total joy, no shame, Shouting with one voice, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You know the outcome, so you can take joy in the process. And our hearts, like Habakkuk's, are freed to worship. Like a Patriots fan with a time machine, freed to go back and appreciate the entire season with an eye to the future, to the certain end. And like Habakkuk, proclaiming our weakness, our hope, the source of our joy, and the strength we have in God is an act of worship. And look at the very end of our text. That last line kind of seemed insignificant when you first read it, because it's just kind of this little notation. But it's a musical notation to the choir master with stringed instruments. It's a musical notation Because this text would have been sung in worship. That is just awesome to me. That an incredibly difficult circumstance is completely turned on its head and used to glorify God and ascribe immeasurable worth to him. And this is helpful to us because in our day-to-day lives, it reminds us where our hope is and of what supreme worth is in our lives. When times are tough, they remind us of our reliance on God when we have nowhere to turn. And it reminds us that when we have lost everything in this world, in a very real and ultimate sense, we have lost nothing because of his complete worthiness. Worship is ascribing worth. It's basically, where do you put your value? When you are struggling with a storm on the horizon, or right now, whether you're going through a trial, big or small, it is responding to it by calling out to God, Lord, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't know a whole ton about blacksmithing, but I love watching YouTube videos of like forging and making axes because it's just the process is just it's relaxing to watch a, a blacksmith working metal taking a lump of steel and just forming it into something amazing and if i could have a forge in my backyard i would be all over that <laughs> fairfax might have something else to say about it though 
Um, and I know enough about blacksmithing that when a blacksmith works a piece of metal on the anvil, they, they heat it up to make it pliable and they fold it over on itself. And doing this gives it more strength with each fold. And they fold it and they shape it and they hammer it and the sparks shoot out. And the sparks that fly off are little tiny bits of impurities that go flying off with each blow. And to do this, the hammer needs to hit. It needs to hit accurately and it needs to hit hard. And for us in our lives, when that hammer of dread or hardship is poised to rain blow after blow upon you, don't look at the hammer. Don't focus on the hammer. But look to the anvil of Christ to which that hammer is shaping you. For you are being shaped by a master craftsman that knows you and understands you far better than you can possibly know. And he is shaping you into something indescribably beautiful and strong. And so when we respond to difficulties, we should look to God, taking joy in him as the author of our salvation, knowing that whatever hurt may come in this life is the only hell we will ever know. And that something much better and eternal awaits. And in doing that, we worship it in spirit and truth. We ascribe ultimate worth to our supreme God. What I love about the Bible is that it can make the same point from, from many, many different ways. And, and if we're talking about impending trials. I can think of none greater than Christ and the cross. Jesus, the shepherd, laying down his life for his flock. The clearest and best example of dread and joy is found at the cross. Jesus, knowing full well what lay before him. He understood God's absolute, total, and infinite abhorrence of sin. For our sake, the Bible says, God made him to be sin. Him who knew no sin. So that in him we might become children of God. He became that which God hated so that we could become family. He understood that the cup of wrath was about to be fully poured out on him and that the Father would turn his face away. And knowing all of this, it's understandable that in anguish he prayed that if there was any other way that that cup would pass. But it didn't. Because there was no other way. God's holiness is infinite. And so any offense to him is infinitely offensive. When God forgives sin, he isn't looking aside. He isn't sweeping it under the carpet. Every sin, whether forgiven or not, results in a death. Every sin must be punished. God's white-hot hatred of sin is like an unstoppable river. And while it may never be stopped, it can only be diverted. And so it makes sense that it was God's will that Jesus would suffer because the only thing that could ever divert God's river of wrath from the valley of our lives was when Jesus, bearing our shame, our iniquities, stood in our place and allowed the torrents of God's judgment to pour over him. So I ask you, where do you stand when it comes to God? Do you stand before him as one does before a judge? Or do you stand before him as a child running to the protective arms of their father? The God that sent the Babylonians in to judge Judah. The God that destroyed the Babylonians. The God that Habakkuk put his faith in and his hope in. The God of Habakkuk's salvation. This is the same God that we worship today who loves us now. And so like Habakkuk, we can look forward, look to our salvation, and rest assured in him as the God of our salvation. And so we've seen how Habakkuk responded, why he responded, and, and if we have faith, what that produces in us, worship. And Jesus did this as well. Hebrews tells us, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus, in the midst of all this suffering, 
But at the same time, having that eternal perspective of looking forward because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross to the point where he could scorn its shame. Brothers and sisters, as we walk this life, taking joy in adversity, that is worship. And that makes God look glorious. Every week here at Sojourn, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do this as an act of worship, of looking at the supreme worth of Jesus, the supreme worth of his sacrifice. And like Habakkuk being moved to worship in the midst of trial, we look to God. And there is nothing magical or mystical about the bread and grape juice. It's just bread and grape juice. But the beauty is in what they point to. When we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim and remember that his sacrifice was counted worthy by God. And so as awful as that sacrifice was, we remember it and we celebrate it. For that's how we were brought into the fold of God. And if you're a Christian, you can freely rejoice in the Lord, taking joy in the God of your salvation, rejoicing that God, the Lord, is your strength, no matter what will come. And so with this in mind, take a moment to examine your heart. Lean hard on your joy and look forward to that magnificent end. And then you can come forward for the bread and juice and what Jesus has done will be spoken over you. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, we ask that you remain in your seat. This Lord's Supper is an act of worship for those who have placed their hope, their trust, or their faith in the sufficiency of Christ's blood to turn away God's wrath. And so while we are incredibly thankful that you are here today to learn more about God, please understand that this act of communion is our corporate and individual yes and amen to what Jesus has done. Instead, please take this time to ask God to open your heart and to make clear your need for a Savior and allow you to take Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? God, you are you are so good to us, Lord. You are so holy and awesome. And God, we, we are a broken creatures. We hurt and we, we scream and we can rage and we don't understand. But God, we thank you that we have faith and that we have joy and that we can look to that certain end, that certain hope that you have provided for us in Christ We pray that we would do that now as we take communion. We pray that we would do that this week as we walk forward. And we pray that we would do that for the rest of the days of our lives. We ask this now because of the sufficiency of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Amen.